Welcome to episode 48 of the PharmExec podcast. This is Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of PharmExec Magazine and your podcast host. PharmExec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. Well, guys, it's January again, and we're starting our third year of this podcast. I can't believe it. It's, it's like crazy. To continue our tradition, we're going to kick off the year with our editors, and they're here today to speak to us about the January issue that went up on trends to watch for 2020. So our industry outlook issue, it can be found at farmexec.com, and it includes trends from financial runways in biotech to data ownership, uh, the oncology pipeline path, and a lot more. So we're going to take a quick break to talk about this year's emerging pharma leaders, and then we'll be back with the PharmExec editors. The Emerging Pharma Leaders Awards are back. Join us in celebrating and honoring the up-and-coming leaders who are vital to the future of the pharmaceutical and biotech industry. Consider the qualities, knowledge, skills, and activities of the nominee. Do you know someone or are someone who's headed for the C-suite? Do they have what it takes to make the tough decisions that will continue to face manufacturers in the coming years? And can they navigate the commercial, financial, scientific, R&D, marketing, sales, and or market access with leadership and inspiration? Do they have what it takes to get to the next level? If so, nominate them today to be one of the next PharmExec Emerging Pharma Leaders. Winners will be announced on stage at i for pharma Philadelphia in April, showcased on the cover and inside of PharmExec's May issue, and featured on episodes of the PharmExec podcast. The deadline for submissions is February 28, 2020. To nominate yourself or someone else, please visit emergingpharmaleaders.awardsplatform.com to register today. You can also find a link to the entry form on our website at pharmexec.com. Hey everyone, as I mentioned earlier, we're discussing our 2020 trends on this episode, and we're joined by Editor-in-Chief Lisa Henderson, Managing Editor Mike Christel, European and Online Editor Julian Upton, and Senior Editor Elaine Quilici. So Elaine, let's start off with you today. Um, Could you give us a deeper look into the biotech financial runways that you wrote about for this issue? Sure, Kristen. Thanks. My feature for January focuses on how companies need to look beyond the basics and consider alternate ways to expand their business. So I'm not just talking about innovative partnerships, but also pursuing different paths simultaneously, kind of as a security measure. I spoke with Peter Young, who's the CEO and president of Young & Partners. He's also a member of PharmExec's editorial advisory board. And Peter explains that it's not enough for a biotech to plan on an IPO or for big pharma to look toward a merger or an acquisition, which might be the traditional paths to growth that they're used to. But instead, Peter says that companies need to look to the greater market and decide what can work for them in that particular climate. For example, if the IPO market and venture investments are slow, biotechs need to, they, they tend to depend more on partnerships and the sale of their companies. On the other hand, if the IPO market is booming and venture capitalists are investing generously, biotechs don't have to look to pharma as aggressively. 
So there's this natural balance within the ecosystem. And Peter provided some recent data on IPOs and M&As to illustrate this point. And he also talks about the current market atmosphere. I also mentioned in my story various ways that this ecosystem can be disrupted and how companies really need to expect the unexpected. It's imperative to have a plan B and a plan C ready to roll just in case plan A falls through. I use two real life examples to demonstrate this point. The first is Constellation Pharmaceuticals, who more or less put all their eggs in one basket and ended up empty handed when their potential acquiring partner pulled out. And then the second example, Melendo, which we recently focused uh, focused on in a podcast, shows how having a contingency plan can pay off. By planning for different scenarios at the same time, Melendo was able to readjust their course during a really challenging time, and they came out on top. So to sum it up, in, in this complicated ecosystem of funding and growth, it seems that being informed, being flexible, and having an open mind are essential in this day and age. That's great, Elaine. Thank you so much. Next, Lisa, we're going to talk to you. Um, You wrote about the oncology pipeline path, and you also wrote about cell and gene cascade. So can you tell us a little bit more about that for the listeners? Sure. So if you go to the article, we have it segmented out online if you're not looking at the PDF version, but we have it um, divided into each of our sections. So you can just click on the oncology. But if you go to that, there's a lot of stats. So what we have incorporated or what I incorporated in the article was a lot of statistics presented by um, IQVIA, the IQVIA Institute's executive director, Murray Aiken who is also a member of our pharmaceutical executive editorial advisory board, which is where we convened a lot of these trends. But regardless, he presented a lot of data. So there's a lot of stats in there, but the basic premise of the article is the oncology pipeline is the largest, the most in clinical development and active clinical trials right now. It's also, um, you know, just by virtue of clinical trials spend is very large and, also because of the duration and the um, science of the oncology pipeline, it's prone most to failure and longer timelines. So the premise was, and Murray pointed out, that every biotech, a lot of these biotechs are in the oncology space in a variety of scientific approaches, which you can also see in our uh, November pipeline report. But Regardless, how sustainable is it? Yeah, there's a lot of VC funding in these firms. And, you know, as Elaine touched on, they have to have multiple runways because you could have a failure or you, the, a company could just say, you know what, we're not going to be in oncology but, so, and change direction. But just kind of talking through, thinking about, is it sustainable? You know, with so much money, in oncology and with all the active, uh, what am I trying to say? You know, how the technology is so advanced, uh, the delivery of the, the products is so much more complicated as well as the pricing. Can it, can it sustain that? And he says, you know, we focus a lot on pricing. Uh, Murray says, and he said in the meeting, you know, we focus a lot on the pricing of these products and the government 
at the U.S. government right now has a lot of things, you know, state, federal uh, level about how we're going to handle pricing. But um, there's market dynamics, you know, how many can this financial environment sustain? And some will be found um, on an efficacy standpoint to be lacking versus another one. So as it all starts to come together and play out in the next few years, that might not be the only you know, the formal pricing directives may not be the only thing that accounts for the oncology market. And then the other, the, the cell and gene cascade was an add-on. It's kind of, last year we focused on the pricing and reimbursement, how, and again, touching on these um, high-touch products, very intense delivery systems of cell and gene therapy, you know, how did they get delivered? So I, last year we focused the high prices and how are um, how are patients going to be able to pay for it? How is uh, payers? What is the situation? Now we're realizing as you go into this next step, how is how can companies scale up in an area that's so um, manufacturing? dependent. And that kind of touches on, again, our November pipeline issue, where we talked about the challenges in manufacturing these products. You know, manufacturing used to be small molecules, um, very much more um, simple, you know, than these complex delivery systems. So that's what we focus on in that article. And that's why we call it the cascade. We also touch on um, you know, the hubs, patient support services, how do they get involved with supporting the patients and connecting the dots for patients with these, um, in this complex environment. So it's a good, it's, you know, it's not, it's a trend for sure, but it's beginning now. And it's something that, you know, we'll continue to watch. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, We're going to move on to Mike. So, Mike, can you tell us a little bit more about data ownership, which was your focus for the article? Yeah, the uh, theme that I focused on is uh, data's high-tech disruption. You know, basically um, discussing this influx of new players that are challenging the whole healthcare data landscape and ultimately the you know, question of ownership. Who owns, you know, the patient? Who owns healthcare data or patient data? So in my piece, I discuss, you know, these new players, you know, emerging in, in the healthcare data world, you know, whether the big tech giants like in you know, Google and, and Apple, Microsoft, in particular, um, you know, offering a lot of promise, you know, for, for preventative health, for research, for personalized medicine. But, you know, uh, their presence is raising concern in, in an already volatile climate around data protection and data quality and ultimately patient trust. You know, besides high tech, you have new startups, um, including digital biomarker companies and digital therapeutic companies. You have retailers, you have payers, and even farm themselves, all, you know, vying for their own piece of the pie in, in this healthcare data, you know, this data driven, you know, new digital product market. And, you know, the crux, really, of of the piece and why we're highlighting this theme is that despite all these best intentions, you know, accelerating research, looking for medical breakthroughs, in essence, you know, all these players are competing for patients, right? They're competing for consumers, their loyalty, 
and their data. So what does that mean then? Well, in my piece, I talk about the need, experts say, to make data the central point of these technology-driven relationships that involve patients. You know, instead of companies purely monetizing data as a byproduct. So that includes responding to patient data issues or patient needs immediately. You know, basically, it comes down to valuing the patient experience and building trust with the patient community. Um, so that that actually brings us to the underlying question that you hear a lot out there in not always easy to answer who owns the data. So I get into to, um, some ex- expert opinion on that. You know, the simple answer, right, is, is is the patient. But, you know, sometimes it's a little more complicated than that. And it really comes down to owning, everybody owning the whole relationship. That's great. Thank you so much, Mike, for sharing that with us. Julian, could you delve into what you wrote about for this issue? I know you wrote about emerging markets and also talent in pharma. Thanks, Kristen. Um, I will start now and talk about, uh, first of all, emerging markets. Um, MIST, which is an acronym covering Mexico, Indonesia, South Korea and Turkey. This was an acronym that was coined by an economist called Jim O'Neill, who also uh, coined the acronym BRIC, which we're familiar with, Brazil, Russia, India, China. Um, and of course, BRIC is, is often focused uh, on when we talk about emerging pharma markets and the second tier being missed, I wanted to look into just how that is faring. And there's some challenges there. Mexico, being the M of MIST, is um, uh, I spoke to a um, director of the Global Healthcare Market Research Company um, Research Partnership called Rachel Howard, and she says that's the most challenging of the four markets to predict what's going to happen 12 months from now. And that's chiefly because um, they've had some radical policies or tried to the, the, the new president, uh, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's known as AMLO, there's another, there's another acronym, um, those are his initials, AMLO, pre-radical policies, uh, dis- disbanding the current health administration system and, and trying to I- implement a, a UK style, so NHS system for the uninsured, but that's uh, not going very well so far. There's huge pressure to contain costs and the finances are really lacking. And he's also empowered uh, the Ministry of Finance to get involved with the procurement of drugs. And this is this is causing some problems for manufacturers from outside, unfavorable conditions, unfavorable, unfavorable tendering conditions uh, and things like that. So a little bit of problem for Mexico. Indonesia similarly is struggling with its healthcare and security, social security agency, which is a recently, well, five years ago, launched to uh, to administer a universal health healthcare program. That's having that's covering about thirty to forty percent of Indonesians, and um, but it's running at a deficit of a billion dollars, uh, and they're, they're now doubling the participants' monthly premiums to try and cover that. So um, still not growing uh, in the right sort of way there uh, in Indonesia. South Korea is the is the bright spot of mist, and certainly, according to Rachel Howard, it's not emerging at all. We could, we could say that South Korea isn't is already emerged. Um, they're the first country to consider pharmacoeconomics data. They've got a well-established health technology assessment program and a thriving tourism market. So South Korea is is light years ahead, really, of the rest of mist. Finally, Turkey uh, that's still having challenges. Um, it's got a low uh, GDP allocated to healthcare at five percent, and it's got a very volatile exchange rate. Where the economy's always had that problem, although there are some some areas of um, of optimism um, because it's setting out a vision twenty twenty three to improve healthcare as a priority. So that's one to watch. 
So that, that was the interesting thing. So it, given South Korea's elevation from the rest of MIST, um, there is some talk, well, maybe it's better to talk about MINT, which is another acronym, uh, and that would replace South Korea with Nigeria. But that's, that has, has with its own problems, and I talk about that in the, in the article. Um, my conclusion really is that, um, you know, are these, are these acronyms, are these groupings going to be relevant as we go forward? China is, is really breaking out of brick. It's China's advancing a lot more than the other countries, just as South Korea is with, with MIST. So I think it'll be interesting to see going forward how long these groupings hold for. We also covered talent and discussing recruiting, cultivating the new breed of farmer leader. And I took some uh, some lead from the FT conference last year, which did approach this subject. And one of the one of the things they highlighted was the importance of the millennial. You know, the millennials are are now forming a, a huge part of the workforce. And the the FT talent conference actually specifically asks, how do we create a value proposition that will attract the millennial. I spoke to a couple of experts in the recruitment field and um, they they agree that millennials are voicing what all of us have probably wanted, which is to feel engaged, feel part of something bigger. They want to um, get things like the work-life balance right. Uh, and, and so accordingly, pharma companies are starting to think di- differently around compensation models and, and labour pools and offering more f- flexibility, remote working, part-time or consulting work. Uh, which is this this sort of thing is growing with these millennial attitudes, you know, such as the need for relocation. People want to work remotely; they don't want to move. So this this is something that the pharma uh, pharma industry has has to accommodate. And then it also talked just briefly about diversity and inclusion, which is something we're going to hear more of, I think, uh, as we go go forward. Although the expert opinion in some cases is that that's not changing too much. You know, the, the things haven't shifted that much in the last decade or so because the kind of people the farm, exec, uh, the farm industry is placing, which is, you know, very senior level, uh, VP level, and there's not a huge pool to choose from. Although Chris Smith from Hayes said that he thinks that the industry has always been really reasonably diverse. It's not just uh, middle-aged white men, uh, or it's not as much as, as it is in, say, the tech industry. But there is pressure on pharma um, to be more diverse. You know, the leadership should match the customer base is, is, is one way of looking at it. And so they've got to break out of this kind of silo of looking, uh, continuing to look for talent within their own industry to find like traditional CEOs and CFOs. They've got to try and look, you know, a bit more outside. And, and they're starting to do that in places like IT, where they need to bring in, bring in sort of people with different expertise and from different industries. So um, that's what I talk about, and that will be, you know, um, interesting to look uh, how how the talent and the war for talent shapes up in in 2020. Awesome. You know, I'm actually really glad that you talked about the talent, Julian, because today we're launching our Emerging Pharma Leaders Awards program for 2020. And, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but we do want to invite all listeners and and anybody um, to nominate themselves, nominate someone else for our Emerging Pharma Leaders. The deadline for submissions is February 28th. And to nominate yourself or someone else, you can visit emergingpharmaleaders.awardsplatform.com or you can visit farmexec.com um, and there should be something up on the website about that as well today. So thank you so much for sharing, Julian. For our listeners, you can read each piece that our editors just spoke about now. Um, they're available at the Farmexec website, uh, farmexec.com, and you can just find them in the Industry Outlook feature. 
So thank you all for being here today and giving our listeners a deeper look into January's uh, featured article. Thank Thanks you. Thanks a lot, Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We're always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, on Instagram at farmexecutive, and also on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of Farmexec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mmhgroup.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mmhgroup.com. Thanks.